As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Elliott. It's the beginning of April here in Australia, and our bushfire season is finally coming to a close. Summer here in my hometown can get blisteringly hot, with 45 degrees Celsius or 113 Fahrenheit not uncommon. And although the threat of skin cancer and sunburn worries the most pasty white of us like myself, bushfires are a major problem here. When you drive down roads on the outskirts of Australian towns, you will see these signs on the side of most of the major roads. A semicircle going from blue to red, starting at moderate and finishing in extreme, with an arrow that moves between them based on the weather, with the threat level increasing as the heat gets worse. But these fires don't just start because of the heat. The spark that actually kicks them off is often something like a lightning strike or an angle grinder or even cigarette. So if it's factors like these that actually kick off the bushfires, then how can you predict when it's actually going to happen? You see, we base the predictions on the heat. When it's cold and rainy, you throw a cigarette out your car when you're just being an ass, but there's no real risk of a fire. But in the summer, the searing heat lowers the threshold for things to get out of control, where one cigarette can burn down an area the size of Ireland. Bushfires here often start as an entire state in the middle of a heat wave, setting the stage of small bushfires to then get out of control, form spot fires, which then merge into larger bushfires. And although in Australia we use these signs on the side of the road to indicate between moderate and extreme to the likelihood of a bushfire, another place these signs could be used is in West Africa, but not for bushfires, but for the likelihood of military coups. You see, recently we've seen a rash of coups throughout the region, and when we look at each individually, they all have completely separate factors. To grossly oversimplify, Sudan's coup was the military attempting to seize back power and turn back the civilian rule of the government. Mali's came about when a cabinet reshuffle removed many of the military power brokers inside the government, being done under the justification of re-strategizing the war against the jihadists. Guinea's came about when the president tried to remove term limits. Tunisia's was a political issue we'll likely have an entire episode on. Burkina Faso's was again under the guise of re-strategizing the war now that the French support had begun to dry up. Guinea-Bissau's was supported by drug smugglers but ultimately failed. And chances brought about by the killing of the president and power being given to his overtly military-friendly son. These are all spot fires, individual cases. But what helps fuel these spot fires is the regional temperature. The lack of water security, the struggle against jihadists, the flailing economies, the prevalence of organized crime in the region, and many more. All of these raise the political temperature, making even the smallest spark capable of a regional geopolitical fire. So what can be done? Should organizations like the African Union or the UN get involved? Should France and the UK step back in? Should we refuse to work with any government that was brought about by a coup? And can people put their faith in democracy whilst the geopolitical temperature is so high? Well, to take us through all of that, we're doing to our first guest. Part 1. A Collection of Coincidences 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There are good grounds for looking at them as, you know, individual coups d'etat. These countries are, you know, in individual countries with individual local and, and national dynamics. But at the, at the same time, you know, they've happened within, you know, the same period of time. And as I've, you know, argued in, in you know, one of the recent pieces I wrote for the Council on Foreign Relations, there's also, you know, um, something to be gained from seeing them in generational terms. So if you look at the, the you know, the cool leaders in, in Mali, you know, in, in Burkina Faso, and I think also in, in, in Sudan, you know, they are members of, you know, the same generation. I call them the, the matrix generation. One, you want to see them within the respective dynamics of their individual countries. That, that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, it's important to also not lose, you know, not lose, um, uh, cognizance of the fact that you know there's also something going on there that is common to these countries, both in terms of you know the themes, you know, and the underlying issues driving these coups d'état, and also in terms of the the fact that the, the coup leaders themselves belong to the same generation. Ebenezer Obadari is the Douglas Dillon Senior Fellow for African Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. He's also a professor of sociology at the University of Kansas and a senior fellow at the New York University School of Professional Studies Center for Global Affairs with a specialization in the geopolitics of Africa. He joins us today. I wish I had the capacity to see a coup coming. You know, I'll, I'll make a lot of money. Um, you can sort of infer, and I think what, you know, what you know, sociology is all about is, you know, you're looking at structural and agency, you're looking at material conditions on the ground, and then you're extrapolating on the basis of your reading of those conditions. So to that extent, you could see a coup coming in that abstract, you know, that very general sense. Um, can you see a particular coup coming? Um, I, I don't think so. But having said that, I think you could basically, you know, now with, with, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, with everything we know about the countries in which this coups that have, you know, have, have occurred, you could possibly then look back and say in retrospect that, yeah, it's not a surprise that the military took over, you know, or attempted to take over, you know, and talking of Guinea-Bissau, where the coup attempt failed, um, that it makes a lot of sense that the military will want to step in in, in, in some of these countries. Um, why? You know, uh, so I spoke about the Islamist insurgency and the way in which it's, it's, it came out of the, 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 the weakness of the state, even though it has also further contributed to the weakening you know, of, of the state and state capacity. But also the other fact that many of these problems have also spilled over into the barracks. Um, you know, the rank and file of the army in many of these countries, you know, has, has been, you know, disenchanted, you know, for a long time. Um, in many of these countries, soldiers, you know, have mutinied, overpay, poor treatment, you know, conditions of living in the barracks. So you could, on the basis of those things, you know, you could put those things together and say, whenever you have all these elements, you know, state weakness, you know, failure to project over a given territory, 
um, disaffection among soldiers, restiveness, you know, within civil society, that at some point, you know, somebody is going to, you know, in the, you know, so, some soldier is going to say, you know, this is an opportunity for me, you know, to, to take over. So in that sense, it's only in that sense that you could say, you know, one is likely to see a particular, you know, military coup d'etat occurring. So obviously we'll be going into some of the specific coups a bit later, but in general, do most of these coups have foreign backing to get them off the ground or are they very much locally driven? Historically, coups in, in at least in West Africa have had you know the backing of you know government, not just outside Africa, but you know government in other parts of Africa. Um, I, I don't want to pick on on Libya, but Libya under Gaddafi, you know, um, apparently gave military and moral support to you know um, you know coup planners in in in, in different parts um, in different parts of uh, of Africa, um, especially West Africa. And then, of course, you know, there is the, you know, the, 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 the usual suspicion, you know, that Western countries, you know, um, not liking particular leaders or not liking the, you know, the ideological direction in which, you know, particular, uh, a particular regime is heading, you know, may have given their support, you know, to, uh, to people planning to overthrow those regimes. So th- that factor is always there. But l- let's keep in mind that, you, you could have all those external factors, but if the internal, you know, regime is solid, if the rule of law is broadly maintained, if there is no disaffection within within the military, if you know civil society is generally, you know, more you know, by and large, restful, it's unlikely for any of those external actors to have the kind of impact that they'll have, such as to you know lead anybody to want to plan a coup within those um, within those countries. So let's talk about Chad for a minute. As we've spoken about Chad, Lake Chad, and Idris Deby on the show before, Idris Deby had been the leader of Chad since 1990 and had a wide range of political support from Paris and many in the West, mostly due to his anti-terrorist stance. In April last year, Deby took a trip to the front line near Lake Chad, and during that trip he was killed. What exactly happened to Deby up at the front line depends on who you ask, but many believe this was a soft coup by the military mostly because of the fact that Debbie's son, Mohammed Devi, was installed into power by the military with support that very day. And this theory is given credence by the wide-ranging concessions that Mohammed Devi had given to the top military brass since April. In a case like this, where one man is killed and another man is put into place, do you think Paris would have known what was coming? Or do these coups occur so quickly that the situation on the ground is solidified by the time the West has come up with any response? It's a great question, and I've always wondered. Given the, um, the the military and intelligence capacity of France, you know, its its capacity in terms of you know broad surveillance, um, the, its connection to the intelligence community in many of these you know West African countries, um, especially the francophone countries, I, I, it would come as a surprise to me if France at least did not have an inkling as to what might happen. You know, in, in in some of those countries. I mean, the long-term complaint against France, um, some of which is legitimate, is that it's not allowed things to naturally pan out and unfold in many of these countries. That it's had its finger in every pie, and I think some of that is legitimate. Which is not to say, you know, that you could then, you know, heap the blame, you know, put the blame for everything that has, you know, transpired in these countries at the doorstep of France. But France has definitely had, you know, a, a role to play in in Burkina Faso, in Mali, against the backdrop of the of the insurgency. You know, for instance, you know, France has 
tried to come to the assistance of these countries, you know, to to repulse the, you know, the um, to, uh, to repulse the insurgency, um, unsuccessfully, you know, as we now, you know, have, we just discovered, you know, in in Burkina Faso. So I, I, it, it's, I think we have to be careful here not to give, you know, you know, France too much credit. You know, for um, for its role in Africa, while at the same time, you know, being careful not to ignore the role that France continues to play in the affairs of these countries. On the other hand, it's not just time that makes the military itchy. Paul Beer, the president of Cameroon, has been in power since 1982, at the start of the Reagan presidency. I know that Beer also has support from Paris, but how has he managed to avoid a coup for so long now? If one of the the deeper mysteries of you know of politics and political analysis in East Africa, it's it's mind-boggling for me as well. I mean, hard to what you've just said, you know, is remarkable longevity. The fact that he spends a considerable, he spends most of his time abroad, is a non-resident African head of state. He does not live in Cameroon. Um, part of Cameroon, you know, at war, you know, with with the central. Um, the, the situation is prime for things to just completely fall apart. Yet, for some reason, somehow he's been able to, you know, maintain his hold on power. Um, is he doing so with, with the backing of France? Probably. But there have to be other forces at play, you know, that has made it almost impossible for him to be dislodged. So whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I don't know. Stability, you know, has its own benefits. But, you know, this this is... The, the situation in Cameroon is looking like, you know, the kind of, you know, stability of, you know, that you have in a graveyard. The country is not properly governed. You know, it's like Nigeria in terms of, you know, um, lack of transparency. Um, the, the infrastructure is very poor, meaning that some of the conditions that I, I, I posited earlier on as, you know, the, the, the desiderata for a coup d'etat, all of them are in place, but yet... <laughs> Pobia, you know, continues, you know, tenaciously at that, you know, to, to hold on to uh, hold on to power is it, a mystery. It really demonstrates just how difficult it is to accurately predict the location of the next coup in Africa. One similarity that we do see in places like Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso is the fact that the government is fighting a war against militants at the time. And many times the military will suggest that they took power because the government wasn't doing enough to win the war. Historically, though, when the military men do take power in these countries, does the actual strategy on the ground against these insurgents actually change? And does the course of the war change? No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, so if, if you are a soldier, you know, and you are power hungry, you know, you and all you have to say is, oh, yeah, look, um, we've been, you know, trying unsuccessfully over the last past decade to to dislodge the Islamist insurgents. We failed. I'm the person who is going to do that. So that becomes a pretext for somebody to take over power. But it's not just in, in that context that people have used this as a pretext. So if you look at Nigeria, for instance, you know, when Buhari was elected, you know, um, in, in, in 2015, he, he came in, you know, promising, you know, as a, a one-time soldier to put an end to the Boko Haram insurgency in, 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 in northeastern Nigeria. Not only has that not happened, the problem has gotten worse under, you know, under his um, on, on his watch. So you have the same situation playing out in in the countries, you know, where you know the military has has taken over. And I think part of the problem, the, the irony is this, that the military having failed, and I think this is an important point, the military having failed 
in its task of actually you know, providing security for the people, is promising to do so if only it were allowed to hold on, you know, to come to power and stay in power. Um, the, 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 the irony there, you know, is a very rich one. And I think people are alert to it. Um, it will seem on the surface, so if you look at, you know, footage, you know, of, of some of those, you know, the events in some of those countries, if you see pictures on, you know, on, on, on several websites, of people apparently giving their support, you know, to, to, to these, you know, cool leaders. And I, it, the point is that people do not so much want those leaders, those military leaders in power, as they want to be better governed, as they want transparency, as they want politicians to be true to their oath of office. So um, the excuse is, you know, we're going to take over and we're going to sort things out. But we've seen time and time again that, you know, this has not been the case. And what you, what you have is what you used to have in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the heyday of military coups d'etat in Africa, where one coup d'etat becomes, you know, the backdrop for yet another coup d'etat and so on and so forth. One of the solutions to this problem that people have put forward is to use the African Union to refuse to recognize the new government after a coup or even place sanctions on their new government. Do you think that would have any success though, or would it just put further pressure on the destabilized country, something that would be particularly harsh for these often undersupplying populations? I think this should be, it's a great question. I think this should be a very clear, from where I stand, this should be a very simple decision for the African Union. Um, you want to condemn, you know, military coups d'etat. You want to make sure that African countries remain broadly democratic. You want to commit the African Union, you know, to the rule of law. And wherever possible, and this is something the union has done, you want to invoke the peer, you know, review mechanism, you know, such that, you know, if there's a problem in one African state, you want other African leaders to go in and help solve you know, solve, uh, solve that problem. Um, my, my, I, I think, you know, the, this is broadly what the African Union has been doing and that it should be doing, you know, more of that. The pro I mean, the thing is, there is no way as a leader, um, as a body, you know, comprising African countries, you know, that you are going to support the takeover of one country you know, by, 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 by soldiers. Because what you are then doing is undermining your own position. You are basically saying, you know, well, uh, if you have no problem with coups, you know, I'm also open, you know, to being, you know, taken over by soldiers. And this is why, you know, after the, 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 the events in, in, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, um, ECOWAS, you know, and, 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 and the AU issued very, you know, strong, you know, uh, opinions, basically saying, you know, condemning the coups d'etat and asking for a restoration of civilian rule um, in, in those countries. ECOWAS actually, you know, had an extraordinary meeting, you know, in, in Accra, in which some of those leaders, you know, now keep in mind that they're, they're, they're don't, not doing it out of any commitment to, you know, to, to any abstract principles. You know, they are trying to save their backs, you know, they are watching their backs and, you know, being careful, you know, so that they too don't suffer the same fate as, you know, the leaders in, in, in these countries. So the first thing is, what should a regional body do once, you know, in the aftermath of a coup? I, I, for me, that's very clear. Issue a condemnation, give support to civil society groups, you know, within the country, you know, um, offer financial support if, if possible, you know, to groups, you know, trying to resist military intervention. For me, you know, that's, that's non-negotiable. That's clear. The other thing you mentioned is about sanctions, right? And I think sanctions are... 
they they problem, right? The, the 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 gains from sanctions, you know, can can be can be dubious. So you can impose sanctions that will hurt, you know, that or that, that are targeted at hurting, you know, the you know the the top echelons of the military, you know, their their, their family members, their relatives. You freeze their accounts and all of that. that. That's okay. You you can do that, and that tends to work. Right. But what sanctions also do of, you know, what they've done in the past, because they then, you know, impose considerable pain, you know, on the larger conflict, conflict is to unite the, you know, the soldiers with the people against perceived interference from outsiders. So in thinking about sanctions, you also have to, to be thinking about, you know, the, the on on the unexpected or the unknown consequences. So on the one hand, you know, I think sanctions are fine if properly targeted, but they are not the answer to everything. The long-term solution is, you know, to strengthen the rule of law, to strengthen civil society within those countries, and to make sure that there is transparency and good governance. Those are the long-term antidotes to military intervention. So we're obviously talking very macro issues here, but for the average person on the ground, who goes through a coup, does much actually change on the ground? Does the management of the water, the sewage, the power, that kind of stuff, actually change when a military coup comes into place? The answer is yes and no. In the immediate aftermath of a coup, a lot changes. Don't remember, don't forget that a coup is also fundamentally a, a, a power move. Um, there's a realignment of political forces. You find soldiers, you know, basically poking around, trying to, you know, create new alliances and new realignments, looking for friends, you know, threatening the media, you know, trying to rearrange the, the political terrain, you know, to suit, you know, the new dispensation. So you have that. So to that extent, something does happen. But in the long term, I mean, so, so we're going back to, you know, the, the problem with coups d'etat, right, which is that, Soldiers do not have the wherewithal and the resources to govern a country. That's not their training. That's not what they're supposed to be doing. And what you find is that over time, not only do they create problems for the economy, for civil society, they end up creating problems for the military itself. So a good example is Nigeria where you know a succession of military coups d'etat over several decades basically destroyed the military as an institution weakened it to its core and you know it's one of the reasons why you know Nigeria has not been able to successfully contain the Boko Haram insurgency so yes at the beginning a lot of things change you know there's a lot of motion but long time there isn't a lot of movement at all even if it is the military who often pulls the triggers on these coups, the fuel for them is often built on poor infrastructure and high cost of living for the general population. With the price of petrol being so high across the globe and the Russia-Ukraine conflict driving up the price of key staples like wheat, are we setting the stage for another large wave of incoming coups in the region? In, in the countries that are really weak, um, where you know the political society is you know is quite weak, civil society is is quite weak. You you are likely to have you know something similar to some of the interventions you've had in you know in in, in Mali, in Guinea, in Sudan, in Burkina Faso. And as I told you earlier, you know the, the one one thread that connects you know some of those places, the fact that you know even before those schools deter that you know they this one are not particularly you know strong. 
you know, strong, uh, strong states. But I, 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 I'll, I'll still put my money on, you know, the, the long-term trajectory remaining positive. You know, people still plodding through, um, elections still being held, and people using, you know, the, the, the pains you've described, the economic pains, you know, which are considerable, to, to ask, you know, more important questions, you know, about how they are governed, you know, to insist on transparency, to insist on elections being held regularly, and to insist on people in power, you know, being being held, you know, accountable. Um, the optimist in me, you know, continues to believe that South, that, that um, Africa will not succumb to, you know, another, you know, spate of coups that will reverse the gains that these countries, you know, the quite modest gains that many of these countries have made over the last 20, 25 years. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So we know these coups are hard to see coming, and they often happen very quickly. And once they do happen, it breaks a population's faith in democracy. Why go out and vote for your candidate if he's just going to get cooed in a few months anyway? So what can be done about it? Should the West be protecting African leaders from coups, no matter how bad the leader was, much like they did in the colonial eras? Or should we look to African organizations like the African Union to discipline these countries, even though that might be viewed as simply kicking a country while it's down? Or should we just leave the country to its own fate, hoping that coups aren't contagious. Well, to talk through these options a little bit more, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Trouble on the home front. Yeah, well, I think this is a sort of general problem in Africa. The reason for that is because of the fact that the states where coups and or plots are taking place, uh, they share the same characteristics, more or less. So there's a an awareness, I think, across Africa and within its institutions that this, uh, you know, posits uh, serious problems for the continent and creates, uh, you know, regions of instability uh, and in regions where there is already uh, a certain level of instability. And when there's a coup taking place, it increases the problem and and makes it more difficult uh, to solve. Henny Stridham is a professor of international law at the University of Johannesburg. He's also the co-author of International Law from Oxford University Press and an expert on the politics of the African region. We're thrilled to have him join us today. Uh, from my perspective, it's difficult to decide why uh, we have this, this recent spate of, of coups in Africa. Um, I think 
it's probably, uh, you know, uh, different factors contributing to that. Uh, first of all, uh, those states are situated in in uh, in regions, as I've said, which are unstable, and you have uh, also other problems apart from political ones inside those countries. It's areas or regions where there's a problem with terrorism, with organized crime, uh, rebel activity, and so on. Uh, but why all of all of that have come together at this point in time is very difficult for me to say. I don't know what the answer to that is. What are some signs you look for that a country is about to go through a coup? I think that is a crucial question you're asking. Uh, it speaks to um, the whole problem of early warning uh, of these uh, conflicts uh, and of, of coups in particular. Uh, and of course, there are warning signs. And that brings me to the whole issue of the, the common features that we find in these countries where this is taking place. For instance, they normally have a, a history of instability and of, uh, of political tension uh, and uh, of sort of violent activity amongst different power groups. You have uh, weak state institutions, uh, you have weak law enforcement, uh, you have human rights abuses, abuses or you have uh, parts of the, uh, of the population uh, left unattended uh, or felt marginalized. And you have a fight for resources. So these are common problems. And if you read, for instance, the the United Nations reports uh, on countries where they have peace missions, for instance, uh, the one report reads like the other. Uh, So we can define uh, common features uh, in these countries which should alert the African Union and also the regional communities uh, of something like a, a brewing plot or some kind of uh, you know instability that is that may erupt i have to mention also in this context uh, the fact that the african union has not only uh, you know adopted a wide range of 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 instruments treaties and declarations and so on uh, on this issue of of unconstitutional changes of government it has an early warning system in place and moreover, it has a, a structural uh, vulnerability mechanism in place. So all these mechanisms uh, are geared towards uh, assessing a situation and provide some early warning notification of problems that may arise. But for some other reason, they're not functioning well, or if they do function well, there is no response to the early warning signs. And I think that is why quite often when action is taken, it's too late, it is already erupted. But I think the point that you make, um, I think in certain instances, it may also be a case of a a quick and sudden eruption of a conflict. Uh, But it it was brewing for some time and the signs should have been picked up and they should have been responded to in good time in order to prevent it from, uh, from exploding. So when Mali recently went through a coup after many of the military power brokers were removed from power after a cabinet reshuffle, France refused to recognise the new government that took over and called for sanctions against the plotters. But two weeks later, Paris considered the government was here to stay and pulled a full 180 and began to cooperate with the new government. Why would organisations in countries like this so quickly change their stance when it comes to coups in Africa? And should organisations like the African Union be in charge of carrying out discipline here? 
there is strong pressure on the African Union uh, to make use of that when a coup uh, erupts or takes place uh, and to suspend the rights uh, of the of the uh, the state involved uh, or to to suspend its membership but let me mention one other strange rather rather strange development uh, while the African Union has applied that sanction to Mali and Sudan, for instance, it has not done so in the case of Chad very recently. In the case of Chad, uh, it has decided um, to allow the, the military government to go through a process of transition and in due course to establish a, a civilian government over time. And the reason for that is, is because that the, the states um, around, the neighboring states around Chad um, have argued for this option and not to, to suspend uh, the state from uh, state's membership or to suspend its rights, um, uh, right of voting, etc. And, and, and so on. And what does it tell us? It tells us that the African Union may, in certain circumstances, uh, revert to the the regional body uh, and to let the regional body take charge of the matter. A lot of the Western press seemed to grab onto the fact there was lots of Russian flags being waved in the crown during the recent coup in Burkina Faso. What would you read from this situation? I think they're homegrown uh, as far as substance is concerned uh, and to a large extent, but I will not uh, exclude uh, foreign invest- uh, interference of some kind uh, and involvement, not necessarily interference, but involvement. Let me give you another example, the Central African Republic with the conflict there. Lately, we have seen uh, you know, very active uh, participation in, in some of the uh, hostilities uh, by Russian troops. And they quite often there on invitation uh, by by the government. Uh, and I think there might be instances where they're there uh, on invitation by somebody else. There are a lot of people who are attributing this recent spate of coups to the French pulling out a lot of their operations in the Sahel region. Do you think Paris trying to pull its forces back is a contributing factor to the amount of coups we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, yeah um, it, it could be provides, you know, um, a better opportunity for for those staging the coup or wanting aiming uh, to take over the government that because of the uh, uh, the french forces are not there anymore it makes it easier for them uh, to succeed uh, with the coup um, but i'm a bit speculating uh, on this issue um, and uh, i i do not have you know clear-cut facts to to assist me in that regard but i'm just uh, looking at your question from a logical point of view. Well, even if the French don't have troops on the ground here, they still can go forward with a regime of sanctions against governments that attempt coups. Do you think the sanctions are particularly useful when it comes to these sort of coups? Or as we've seen in Mali, they tend to just hurt the population more? My response to that is, and I have to to tell you, uh, you know, quite frankly, that I'm very skeptical about the successes of sanctions uh, all over the world. Uh, not only in Africa for purposes of, of dealing with coups. Um, I have no clear, I've never seen any clear evidence that a regime has changed course because of sanctions. And there are many countries also in Africa, Zimbabwe is one who over the years have faced uh, you know, fairly severe sanctions from the European Union and other bodies. Uh, 
um, and governments um, without any significant changes in the, the domestic circumstances in that country. Uh, and I can, you know, there are many other examples. So I really doubt, doubt whether the, the kind of sanctions that we have currently and which are sort of in a normal uh, way are imposed upon countries in trouble, whatever the case might be, uh, will work. Um, I think one of the, the better options when we talk about sanctions in Africa in particular uh, will be the suspension uh, of membership, uh, which is a sanction that uh, the African Union has. And I think that is a more severe kind of action, which is, um, which is uh, you know, excommunicating that country uh, without, uh, you know, affecting uh, the population. Uh, uh, as opposed to economic sanctions, for instance, we may have spin-offs, uh, very negative ones, um, you know, having uh, bringing hardship to to the domestic population. But in general, I'm skeptical of of where the sanctions work. With the price of many staples like petrol and wheat going up across the region, are there any countries in particular that you're watching very closely as they're very likely to go into a coup soon? So I think um, because of the the general instability in the Sahel, there may be more countries uh, susceptible to this. Uh, and another area I'm worried about uh, is East Africa. Uh, economically, it's not going well there, and we had coups, coups there in, in uh, Ethiopia and so on. And uh, we have, uh, you know, terrorism. We have political tension uh, in some countries. Uh, so I think the there is definitely structural uh, vulnerabilities in, in in East Africa as well as in 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 the Sahel. Um, and uh, Central Africa may be also on the list. Uh, we have already won the Central African Republic. Well, the other resource in the Sahel that a few people seem to be talking about is water. And water is becoming more scarce in a lot of these countries across the Sahel. Is the lack of water and the competition for it likely to bring about instability and therefore additional coups? Yeah, because certainly, uh, you know, the dependency of people on, on water supply and good quality water and sufficient water um, is a sticky point. Um, it is one of those, uh, um, you know, sources, resources that uh, when it diminishes, uh, when it becomes uh, a ground for, for tension and conflict, will uh, will lead to, to more, you know, uh, expansive, uh, violent eruptions maybe and, and conflict between groups because uh, you have the, uh, the tendency that somebody wants to take control of that um, and uh, that is always uh, a worry, worrying uh, development. From an international law perspective, if a Western country is to find intelligence that a coup is about to happen to a country, are they obligated to let that government know that they're about to go through a coup? The duty, I think, to, to provide, uh, um, you know, intelligence on that um, uh, is uh, the right way to think about it. Uh, I think that's the kind of intervention the West should concentrate on. The reason why I'm reluctant to um, suggest other kinds of interventions because of the, the very strong you know, um, doctrine, if I can call it that, in Africa, that uh, Africa's problems uh, should be uh, resolved by Africa. And there's this, uh, you know, long-standing um, 
you know, uh, feeling against uh, intervention by the West uh, and other countries. Um, so I think uh, what they can do is certainly to, to provide uh, capacity uh, and advice and maybe uh, training if that is need, needed. Uh, and of course, uh, like I've said, uh, intelligence. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's a risky, it's a risky proposition uh, for the West. In addition to intelligence, a lot of people have been asking the West to get more involved in providing food security for some of these countries. But is it possible to give food security and donate food without risking it falling into the wrong hands and just giving more money to bad actors when they sell the food on the black market? That will depend on uh, the capacity of the state uh, where the food is, is sent to. Uh, if you have a, a sort of um, a security uh, you know, system in place in, in a country, um, and you can, you know, trust that, uh, and with the assistance of of, of the government, uh, uh, you can secure the provision of, of food and other forms of aid. Uh, I think that's your first call uh, to do so. The problem is where you have to provide food in countries uh, where that capacity is lacking, uh, and you can, cannot even trust the police or or, or the army. And in, in that instance, it is a very uh, problematic situation because the the countries uh, sending the food uh, cannot provide you know military assistance or uh, other forms of, of force without the consent uh, of the domestic government um, uh, so you need that first um, and even then it might cause some tension uh, in the country concerned and finally is your overall outlook for the region positive or negative going forward do you think this has just been a phase or frankly coups are going to continue to accelerate and get worse going forward if i look at the the underlying causes and the root causes uh, as it is normally mentioned uh, in uh, african union uh, balance um, they are still present in uh, many of these countries um, and they are of such a magnitude uh, that it will take uh, years, if not decades, uh, to attend to them effectively and to remove at least some of the root causes. So as long as they are in place, uh, I think the trend will continue and we will have political instability. You will have, uh, so, uh, maybe not necessarily uh, in all cases, a successive uh, coup, but you have plots, uh, you have attempts. Uh, in overthrowing the government. Uh, I do not see that uh, unless there is some uh, very, very effective intervention from the side of the African Union and the sub-regional bodies uh, to put in place better mechanisms uh, to deal with this, um, the trend will continue. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. So is there a central thread here? Is there something connecting these seemingly local coups together? Or is it just lots of little spot fires? 
Is it possible to be able to give enough assistance or intelligence to a nation to be able to stave off a coup before it even starts? Or does that just bring us back to the West picking favourites? There are a lot of options on the table and few that have been proven to work. But to take us through these options and what the international community can do about this, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Befriending the Old Enemy I mean, we can argue that there's a perfect storm going on. There has been um, a backsliding of democracy, but then that's the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg. There's also been the shock of COVID, but we can't blame COVID entirely simply because Africa has suffered less from COVID um, comparatively than other continents. Um, part of it may also be contagion. Um, a coup is successful in one area and it inspires coup attempts in neighbors. But ultimately, look, you can't have a coup uh, if you have good governance and if you have good civil military relations. So the common factor is a combination of um, poor governance in many places and increasingly poor civil military relations. Michael Rubin is a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. He previously worked as an official at the Pentagon for multiple administrations, where he dealt with issues relating to Africa and the Middle East. He joins us today. Well, you know, the reason why I'm a historian rather than a political scientist is I'm much more comfortable with the bottom-up approach than the top-down approach. And so I tend to look at this in terms of every country, every region has its unique characteristics, which don't necessarily apply uh, to other places. However, um, Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, and by, by all means, I mean, Rwanda is not a democracy, did observe astutely. I mean, he basically said part of the major problem for this rash of African coups is simply poor governance. And when you look at what's happened to Mali, when you look at what's happened to Burkina Faso, that's without doubt. One other factor, which I think comes into play, which we don't talk about enough, is the involvement of militaries and former military regimes in business. Because then, it, if they're going to democratize it's not and liberalize, it's not simply a matter of giving up political power. It's giving up the livelihood, the financial gains, which many of them came to expect. This has certainly been the case in places like um, Egypt and Sudan. Uh, it's also the place. Uh, it's also the case in um, the Democratic um, Republic of Congo and perhaps other areas in Africa as well that um, we're seeing. Uh, I mean, it just increases the temptation. From the perspective of outsiders looking in on these coups, do we get much warning time when a coup is about to happen, or frankly, they just tend to burst out of nowhere? Well, when we look at what's happened in the Sahel and in Western Africa, where the preponderance of the coups have been, what we see are, are societies that are engaged in um, insurgencies, military conflicts, and so forth. We also see places where there have been previous coups. Um, if we want to look at Africa, for example, more broadly, someplace like Namibia or Botswana, which are broadly democratic, um, people don't generally worry about coups down there. Mali, um, when I first visited Mali in the um, early 2000s, it was one of the most democratic countries, not only in Africa, but in the developing world. I mean, it had something like five um, changes of power between government and opposition. 
but once you have one coup, it fundamentally erodes the um, the stigma associated with trying again. And this is why I would say that coups are contagious both inside the countries and among their neighbors. If you want to look more broadly, I mean, when you have a country uh, like Syria in the Middle East, coups were frequent in Syria. Coups were frequent in Yemen um, through much of the 50s, 1960s, and so forth. And it, what it really took was a dictator who stamped down and essentially coup-proof through sheer terror that prevented coups from continuing in those places. Unfortunately, that suggests that um, democracy isn't the only anecdote to some of these coups. And then the question for the developing world, um, the question for the international community is when there is a coup, if you want to undo that damage, how do you do that? Do you want to simply value the security that and stability that comes with the dictatorship? Or do you actually look for a more longer term democratic solution, which is a, um, a system of government in which it simply becomes impossible to stage a coup? And again, I would look at some place like Botswana or Namibia or even a place like Rwanda now. Obviously, every country is different, but in general, when these coups happen, how much actually changes for the general public? Or is this simply just one set of elites replacing another set of elites? Well, in many cases, um, these coups are happening in countries that have very limited economies. Um, what the coup generally impacts is who has control over certain contracts, who has control over certain commodities. But if it comes to a situation um, if you're an agricultural state, for example, or if livestock is your trade, as often happens in the Sahel, then the coup generally doesn't impact you much. Um, people put their head to the ground uh, in the capital until they come out. But if you're not involved in politics, you don't expect to become uh, swept up into this. The exception to this, of course, is when there is a um, coup leader who decides to blame a certain ethnicity. Um, a certain segment of society, and then the coup could signal a green light for uh, oppression. And this is what a lot of people worry about, for example, in a place like Mali, where the government of Mali, the military government of Mali, has turned its back on France, has decided to cast its lot with the Wagner Group. When I talk to analysts about what's going on there, the reason they say that the government in Mali, the new military coup leaders, are so intent on turning their back on France is that the French weren't doing what they they the military felt was needed, which is uh, targeting the Fulani ethnic group. And so in a case like Mali, you might actually have a situation where the military regime is going to try to use its control in order to target um, a, a scapegoat, target an entire ethnic group. And we're seeing something similar in Ethiopia, although of course, that's um, not a coup, really. If anything, you could say it's a self-coup, but it, it's an increasing trend in Africa as well. Mentioning Wagner there, how involved are groups like Wagner in some of these coups, particularly in places like Burkina Faso, where we see Russian flags waved about in the crowds? You know, the, the way I tend to look at this is, while there's a lot of conspiratorial, conspiratorial thought, and there's a knee-jerk reaction uh, in the United States to want to blame Russia and China, uh, in other places to want to blame the United States. After all, uh, several of these military um, 
leaders have been on exercises with the United States or undergone training in the United States, I would ultimately say that most of these coups are generated locally, uh, at least now. And this is the biggest difference between now and the period of the Cold War in the 1960s, 1970s, and so forth. Um, at most, we can say that perhaps some intelligence services are aware of this and choose not to step in. But um, I don't want to... I don't want to strip a lot of these coup leaders and a lot of these societies of the agency which they have. They are the ones making the call. Um, oftentimes, even if the United States or other countries have intelligence that something might be in the works, uh, the fact of the matter is that by the time that intelligence percolates up uh, to the decision-making level, people, I mean, the coup has already happened. It, I mean, the intelligence is overtaken by events. Until recently, a lot of African nations could call upon the African Union for help in some circumstances. And the African Union would send peacekeepers. But these peacekeepers were largely made up of Ethiopian troops, who, due to the civil war in Ethiopia at the moment, are being called back there to fight. With the African Union unable to help a lot of these nations now, should nations like France step up to help? Or frankly, is that a little bit too close to the return of colonialism? Well, you know, you actually raise a great point right now. I've had a lot of in-depth discussions with various African leaders um, with regard to what's going on in Ethiopia. And of course, Ethiopia isn't uh, a coup, but there's a civil war going on. Ethiopia is a country um, in which constitutionally there's ethnic federalism. And of course, there's been a conflict between the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, who was ironically a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and the Tigray province, in which his former partners, who have now turned into the opposition, the old guard Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, have risen in, in rebellion against him. And a lot of African leaders believe that the reason why this war broke out was basically because of Abiy Ahmed's miscalculations. And a lot of African leaders also don't particularly like Abiy Ahmed. They say, there's, there's a way that African leaders talk to their people, and there's a way that African leaders talk to each other. And Abiy Ahmed doesn't seem to understand the difference. That said, even though Abiy Ahmed has very few friends, no one wants to see um, him overthrown because of the precedent which that sets. And so within the African Union especially, there's a knee-jerk reaction for stability. This brings us to your question, well, what can be done? One of the problems we have, and this is where perhaps the Wagner Group or the Chinese come into things, is the willingness of um, these groups to strike deals, strike commercial deals with the coup leaders in order to continue their, their, um, their economic um, extraction of resources. And if there's no stigma associated in practice, with having been a coup leader, if you're not going to suffer automatic isolation, then you may figure that the price is worth it. Ultimately, you're going to succeed. Ultimately, you can sort of um, out outlast some of the rhetorical condemnation because people are going to um, eventually do business with you. This is what we're seeing in practice uh, in Sudan. And ultimately, this might be what we're seeing or what we're come to see in a place like Mali. Well, when Mali went through a coup recently, France at first refused to recognize the new government and called for sanctions on the plotters. 
but two weeks later parents could see that the government was here to stay and made a complete backflip on the decision, recognizing a new government and continue working with them. To other governments realize there's very little they can do without making large commitments to the region. Again, there's shades of gray here, but my general point of view is that we should not be recognizing um, the coup leaders. That said, the reason why often we do recognize the coup leaders, and when I say we, I mean just broadly the international community, is when there's overlaying security concerns and we feel that we basically just have to swallow our pride and deal with the devil uh, for fear that those whom they're fighting could be even worse. This is certainly the case in a place like Burkina Faso, which has had a problem with the Islamic State. It's a problem in Mali, which has had a problem with Al-Qaeda affiliates. If you're simply going to wash your hands, are you creating a vacuum which um, these other groups are able to fill? That ultimately is the biggest difference between um, some of the international response when we look at Africa versus what we saw in Myanmar. In Myanmar, it's seen purely through a human rights lens. When it comes to Africa, oftentimes the security lens acts in contradiction to the human rights lens. Other countries in Africa at the moment that we're watching very closely because they have all of the telltale signs of an upcoming coup. I, I mean, there, there's other countries, especially in the Sahel. Um, in Chad, for example, where the former president was killed fighting insurgents, there's a lot of discord about the fact that his son was put in in a temporary position. People don't tend to like this notion of um, sort of a, a Republican monarchy, an inherited title uh, in a republic, and that can sometimes lead to other military elements to, um, to try to stage a coup. If they feel that Again, there's not going to be an opportunity to change power to get their um, their own constituencies fed or represented, especially in a tribal tribal um, or or clan um, society. Then they feel that they have no choice but to try. They have no choice but to try uh, to hit that jackpot. Otherwise, not only they but the people whom they represent, tribally, ethnically, or so forth, will be left behind. I certainly very much worry about Somalia proper as opposed to Somaliland, where um, increasingly there's a great deal of frustration about President Mohamed Formajo trying to hold on to power extra-constitutionally. People are worried that he's trying to emulate his uncle, uh, the former dictator of Somalia, Siad Bare. Um, beyond that, I would worry about countries like Mauritania, which we don't talk about as much, which are considered more stable now. And the reason why I would worry about a country like Mauritania is because suddenly there's a windfall or a potential windfall in terms of hydrocarbons uh, with successful drilling from Cosmos Energy um, in Mauritania. And so once you have that potential jackpot, it really tests um, the political society it's a stress test for, for the political uh, class to see whether they're able to accommodate that or whether greed is going to overtake uh, one or two people who are going to try to monopolize and um, try to seize power in order to monopolize that, that resource. Many of these African nations, like Mauritania and Egypt, get huge amounts of their wheat and food and fuel supplies from Russia or Ukraine. With the conflict kicking off in that region of the world and a shortage coming to these countries almost overnight, 
do you think we're likely to see destabilization in other countries in Africa that are very reliant on Russian and Ukrainian products to fuel their economies? I mean, one of the ironies here is if we want to differentiate between coups and revolutions for a second, revolutions tend to occur when the economy is actually increasing. Uh, that was the case with the Islamic Revolution in Iran. It's been the case um, actually with the Arab Spring and so forth. Um, and so ultimately, let's. I want to differentiate here and put revolutions aside. Um, when it comes to coups, the countries I would worry about most are actually the countries which depend a lot more on, as you said, the wheat and the grain exports. Uh, a lot of those countries are in North Africa. I mean, countries like Egypt, where there's a history, whenever the price of bread goes up, that there tends to be a, a revolution. Um, countries like Iran, which of course isn't Africa, but this case is corollary. When I talk to um, officials in Iran, while they've taken great pains to import enough wheat for bread because they're conscious of the Egyptian example, they understand what happens when there's not bread available for Iranians. What they say is that has meant that there hasn't been a lot of grain left over for, for chicken feed. And so now you've got a situation where you don't have the bread shortage, but you have the, the chicken shortage, uh, and certainly in other places, a meat shortage. So it will be interesting to see. Um, not so much whether the price of bread is going to cause a revolution or unrest, but whether some of the corollary impacts are going to cause a, um, a decline in, for example, the, the availability of some meat, some poultry, and so forth, uh, especially in uh, certain areas um, which might be more dependent on, on this sort of exports. Uh, that said, when I'm in a place like Somalia, when I'm in Ethiopia, there is a there is an um, there is agriculture, and when you also have in certain areas a more of a livestock and dairy culture, and so that mitigates some of the problems that um, the Middle East would face, for example. Well, another factor very common in these Sahel countries is the finding of jihadi or Islamic groups. With a lot of these states having weaker national infrastructure, do you think we're likely to see an increase in groups that are affiliated with ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Um, that I think we're going to see. Because, you know, when when there is a power vacuum, seldom is, is that, that vacuum filled by the forces of altruism. Um, where this becomes an element, perhaps, with regard to uh, coups or the potential for coups, is first of all, there are set smuggling routes across the Sahel, across Northern Africa. And oftentimes you have the criminal elements which are involved in the smuggling make common cause um, with, with the jihadis, not because they're ideologically with the jihadis, it's simply a, a business relationship for them. We've seen this, for example, with the Polisario Front in the Tinduf province of Southern Algeria. We've seen this elsewhere. Uh, we've seen an increasing um, difficulty of weapons um, security and weapons smuggling. Um, two decades ago, this was because of the collapse of Libya, uh, which flooded the entire region with weaponry. Now we see in parts of Nigeria, for example, a great deal of instability caused by this weapons flow um, in jihadi hands and also just within the hands of um, smugglers. Uh, short answer, however, is as the quality of governments decline, 
as groups like the Wagner Group um, in Mali and Burkina Faso become in, in Central African Republic are accused of human rights violations and of exploiting some of the resources of society. This leads to greater instability and um, the Islamic jihadist elements can sometimes take advantage of it. I came back from um, a month and a half ago from Cabo Delgado, which is the province of northern Mozambique, which the Islamic State overran. And people are still talking about how astounding it was that in Cabo Delgado, you basically went over the course of a month from government control to a completely being overrun by an Islamic state affiliated groups which no which simply weren't on anyone's radar screen and that shows how important it is for the government to provide services uh for the government to have some sort of infrastructure in a region uh and what the mozambique government had failed at entirely was also gathering intelligence and by this i don't mean super secret intelligence the official language of mozambique is portuguese the official i mean the language in practice in Cabo Delgado is Swahili, and no one from the government in Mozambique bothered to communicate with the locals. Uh, and therefore, when you had these elements in the bush who were planning their um, their uprising, no one really talked to the Mozambique policemen, and if they did, the Mozambique policemen couldn't understand a word they said. Uh, sometimes it's that pragmatic. It's 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 that functional but that's just a sign of poor governance if you have a government which can't talk to um 90 of its people in any region of that country well these groups working with organized crime actually brings up an interesting point when we we're doing research of this episode we came across huge drug smuggling routes uh, from paraguayan cartels up through guinea and guinea Bissau and into the turkish and european markets with the drugs how prevalent are these drug smuggling rings in countries like guinea and guinea Bissau? And do they work in tandem with the governments there? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And you often find, this is why I say when you have these smuggling routes, um, they're used, it's not as if uh, jihadist groups, political insurgencies, and drug smugglers and other criminal elements each establish their own separate routes. There are set routes which are often controlled by local authorities who get paid to turn a blind eye. Um, and so the human, the human traffickers, the drug smugglers, the terrorists are all utilizing the same, I mean, the same routes. And so when we see the drug smuggling, oftentimes we will also see corollary incidents of terrorism and corollary in, in certain areas of the Sahel, uh, Islamist um, inspired terrorism, simply because um, everyone is interacting with each other along these smuggling routes. In your opinion though, should the West be getting more involved here? Should we be picking sides and putting troops on the ground? Or frankly, that's a very slippery slope. Okay, um, first of all, I do think that we need to be working with both the African Union and other uh, regional bodies because um, look, I mean, we are gonna be, we in the European West, we in the United States, are going to be stigmatized uh, by the legacy of colonialism. And it's a lot easier for local groups to act and act um, authentically and with legitimacy than when the United States moves in. 
uh, or when France, and France is certainly learning this. This is why separately the case of Rwanda is so interesting because when the Wagner group fled northern Mozambique, it was the Rwandans who stabilized the area. They actually stabilized their area better than the South Africans stabilized another part of Cabo Delgado. Likewise, when the Rwandans deployed to the Central African Republic, I mean, it's an open secret that this was a big um, middle finger directed at the French government who could no longer do this. That said, after that initial tension, the French and the Rwandans, President Macron and President Kagame, have come to an understanding that, you know, Rwanda can do certain things in Africa that the French can no longer do because, simply put, the 2020s are different than the 1920s. To be more um, specific in regard to your question, what I would say is what should the West do in response? Certainly, I don't think we should rush in to work with these um, coup leaders. We shouldn't be legitimizing them. We should recognize that any short-term gain with regard to uh, security is going to comes at the expense of a much broader long-term insecurity. I don't think that we should be giving legitimacy to these groups, these coup leaders, these juntas, just because we're worried that we need to cooperate because uh, terrorists might operate in their hinterlands. Um, while it's a very complicated debate, one of the reasons why the United States and other countries uses drones um, against what we would define as terrorist elements is because we can target those elements without having to send in a brigade combat team. We can do it uh, by, we, we can target specific areas without having to make a devil's bargain with the governments which in theory have sovereignty over those areas but whose legitimacy may be uh, questioned all at once. And I also think we need to be much more careful about foreign aid. All too often, we in the United States, we in Europe, we in Australia, we in the West more broadly, tend to think of foreign aid in terms of um, humanitarian motives, altruistic motives. Um, but when you're giving aid to a country, especially a country with a troubled record of um, democracy, Ultimately, you may be doing more harm than good, because if, first of all, when you give the aid and it's channeled through the government, it can grease corruption, especially dysfunctional corruption. On the other hand, um, if a government knows that outsiders are going to take care of the sewage system, they're going to take care of the electricity, they're going to take care of the schools, then because money is fungible, it allows the government to actually become a force for instability as they engage in um, extraction of resources, as they engage in civil conflict and so forth. Again, I'm sorry to rabbit on, but one of the key examples um, that I think gives some sort of a model as to how you can overcome the cycle is Rwanda. Because when you look at transparency, I mean, Rwanda, of course, there was the anti-Tutsi genocide back in 1994. When you look at Transparency International's um, rankings for perception of corruption, Rwanda was, not surprisingly, once near the bottom of the world. Now, it's among the cleanest countries in Africa, and it's on par with the Czech Republic and the Baltic states, 
the Rwandans have more or less overcome dysfunctional corruption. I would argue that one of the ways to coup-proof is to help these countries overcome dysfunctional corruption. And part of that is by not pouring money into the country if they don't have the capacity to manage that money. And what do you see for the future going forward for this region of the world? Do you think there's likely to be more coups or less coups going forward? Africa is a huge continent, and I don't want to castigate the entire African continent. There are many, many success stories right now uh, across Africa. The problem is in West Africa, and the problem is in the, the broader Sahel. It's not in Southern Africa. I, I think in East Africa, we're pretty secure. Even in the Great Lakes region, we're increasingly secure. So ultimately, we may see increasing numbers of coups um, persist until there can be better security and better governance in places um, across West Africa. The other country which I, I do worry about looking forward in terms of a loss of stability is Liberia. Of course, there's been two civil wars in Liberia. Uh, Liberia recovered from those civil wars. Um, the president of Liberia in the past actually, um, Sirleaf, uh, Ellen Sirleaf, won a Nobel Peace Prize. But now we have a president, George Way, who increasingly seems to be engaging in corruption, who has backslid on um, commitments to, to um, tackle corruption, tackle economic crimes, and seems at best to, to be lackluster in his commitment to allow contested elections. And so again, ultimately, it takes a couple successive elections to build up that cash to, to coup-proof yourself. Uh, and unfortunately, until you have three or four elections, uh, society is going to be vulnerable. And one of the things the West can do is to put pressure on governments like George Ways ahead of time so that he understands that uh, if he's tempted to try to hold on to power, if he's tempted to undermine democracy, uh, it's not going to be accepted, there's going to be consequences, and that he needs to move forward with the established democratic timetable. It's very tough to make a call on this as a whole, because Africa is such a diverse continent. Should he be condemning a coup when it comes about because the president wants to do away with term limits and serve indefinitely? Should we refuse to work with any government brought in by a coup if they're the only thing keeping the regional insurgents in check? And if we intervene in coups here in Africa, do we also get involved in coups in places like Myanmar or even Belarus? This is the debate going back and forth whilst the geopolitical temperature is rising. Coups are becoming more frequent and increasingly scarce resources in areas like the Lake Chad Basin are veering the area to becoming a large-scale thunderdome. If the rest of the world sits on their hands, things will get worse. If the rest of the world sends additional aid in to try and stabilise and prevent food shortages, that would require working with the local government quite often. Governments will likely to skim food and sell it on to for a profit, meaning they can divert funds set aside for food to buy extra guns. Because if someone else is paying for the food, well, we have more pocket change to spend on guns. We're also frankly dealing with less appetite from members of the West to permanently station troops in these areas of the world, with France, the previous regional hegemon, scaling back its operations in the region, 
because how would it look sending the French back in to eliminate an opposition because France said that opposition was going to do something dastardly in the future according to their intelligence? It's not a good look. So once again we come to the forking of many paths, all of which have major drawbacks and there are no easy options ahead. But whilst we continue to fumble with this decision, the geopolitical temperature climbs and the fires continue to spread. Thank you for tuning into the show this week. This episode was one that took a whole bunch of extra research to do as we were effectively covering 10 countries rather than one or two, but something we've had requests for for a while now. Hopefully in the future we'll be able to find time to cover each of these countries properly and do them justice. So stay tuned in the future. But to keep up to date with everything we're up to at the moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz, Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Alexander Dewing, who is the latest patron to sign up as of time of this recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like Alex, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep this show going, and we cannot thank them enough. So if you feel you can spare a couple of dollars, we greatly appreciate it. But for now, Alex, this episode on the rise of coups in Africa is thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Fortunes of Africa by Martin Meredith, for a look at the economic factors shaping the region. The second is The States of Africa, also by Martin Meredith, for a look at the geopolitics of the region. And the third is one of my favorites, The Looting Machine, by friend of the show, Tom Burgess, for a look at the resource trade in Africa and how it affects the politics. I want to thank this week's guests, Ebenezer Obadari, Henny Stradum, and Michael Rubin, all of you are fantastic to work with on the program, and we look forward to having you back soon. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCaw, the producer, Owen Swift, Perry Grace, Danielle Isabella, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Rissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, and Jonah Gunn, our production assistant. These people are the backbone of the show, and we're incredibly lucky to have them. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts.